Hello once again, this is The Debrief and I'm Angus Scott. When Everton were deducted 10 points for breaching financial fair play rules recently, there was an audible sharp intake of breath around the footballing world. It was the most severe punishment handed out in the Premier League's history. But Everton's charges are pale in comparison to the 115 Manchester City are facing for their breaches of financial fair play rules. Two weeks ago on The Debrief, we heard lawyer and former financial advisor to City, Stefan Borson, predict a 100-point deduction was on the cards for the Abu Dhabi-owned club. Now it seems we're all set for an autumn showdown next year between the Premier League and Man City at an independent commission. A hearing that will be held behind closed doors in private with no public access. The outcome of which will be posted on the Premier League website. Maybe not until the summer of 2025. All of which is as secret as Ben Jacobs' private life. Very little of that comes out in public, and maybe that's for the best. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. You're right. We should try and keep that as private as possible. But obviously, it's going to be very interesting on the Manchester City side to see what happens next and when it happens as well. We could be in for a long wait. So we are asking, could Man City be expelled from the Premier League if and when that decision ever arrives? Well, helping us answer that question today also is the editor of the Blizzard and Guardian columnist, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, great to have you on the debrief. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Jonathan, start with you. Tell us, how did we get to where we are today? <laughs> OK, <laughs> I mean, we go, where do you start with that? Um, so yeah, I think there's been disquiet, uh, let, let's, let's say it begins with Roman Abramovich in 2003, I, I guess, of, yeah. um, I, I think, you know, when, when Abramovich takes over Chelsea, um, what happens is for the first time, and I guess you can, you can isolate individual cases where it has happened before, but on, on a new level, your, a, a club's capacity to, to spend money is decoupled from success on the pitch. That they have a phenomenally rich owner who can essentially buy whatever he wants. He's richer than anything that had ever been seen in the league before. So yes, he had had Blackburn with Jack Walker, but it was a much smaller scale. It was much more manageable. And the fact that Jack Walker for 60, 70 years had been a fan of Blackburn, it somehow felt a little bit less invasive. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, yeah, we can spend hours talking about the background of this, but you look at, say, what Arsenal did at that time, which was they were at Highbury, they were looking at Manchester United, and they were thinking, well, one of the huge advantages Manchester United have is Old Trafford, which was roughly twice as large as Highbury, had a far greater uh, commercial potential um, in terms of you know, sponsorship, in terms of uh, corporate hospitality, all, all that kind of thing. So they build the Emirates. By the time the Emirates is complete, they, you know, a huge outlay the financial world of football has changed. That leads to the introduction of various financial fair play regulations. Um, 2011 with UEFA, Premier League regulations are slightly different to that, by which time City are owned by Sheikh Mansour uh, and therefore indirectly by the Abu Dhabi state. Um, and in theory, these regulations prevent overspending that's not generated by the club's um, activities via gate receipts, sponsorship, whatever. And and these charges suggest that they have consistently 
breached those those regulations. You know, then 115 charges. Some of them are to do with non-compliance with the investigation, but the vast majority do with breaches of, of those or potential breaches of those regulations. Yeah, these are, just to go through a few for you know our listeners and viewers to really understand what these charges are about. Man City are charged with they fail to give a true and fair view of the club's financial position, of failing to include full details of a player and a manager's remuneration, of failing to comply with rules regarding financial fair play and failing to cooperate in a Premier League investigation. Those are the charges, summary of some of the 115 charges. We can go into a bit of depth of those as we go. But, but Ben, Aaron, it's interesting where these charges came from because uh, it was an external investigation, a, a good old-fashioned computer hack that brought this to light. Yeah, certainly as far as the media is concerned, we should first of all point out that Manchester City strenuously deny any guilt and Pep Guardiola is on record as saying that as well. But there's 115 charges and when you look at them and the leaks that you mention, some of them are astonishing and not only astonishing, but went through the UEFA disciplinary process and then were subsequently overturned at the Court of Arbitration for Sports and crucially in the context of the independent panel and the Premier League's push for punishment, CAS is not an option. So there is an appeals process, but it's not via CAS. And if Manchester City didn't have the option of CAS in the context of UEFA, then they would still be punished. So it's fascinating because there's overlap, there's not overlap, there's certain charges that are not time barred as far as the Premier League are concerned that were time barred in the context of UEFA. But in essence, this all came about in an absolutely astonishing statement that was just under 800 words. It was quite nonchalantly put up on the Premier League website. I remember it being next to an article about Sean Dyche and a few tips for a game week as far as Premier League fancy football was concerned. And there it was just in the middle of nowhere. And it said that Manchester City would be referred to this independent commission. And as you've already outlined, 115 charges, 2009 through to the end of the 2017-2018 season. And if we're sort of summarising it in layman's terms, we're essentially saying that Manchester City are accused, charged, as far as the Premier League are concerned, of not providing accurate financial information. And most of it relates to sponsorship revenue, but also how they've dealt and declared with third parties and how they've also declared on the books their operating costs. And maybe most interestingly, because I suppose it's the sexiest part of these charges, a lot of attention's been drawn because of the leak to Roberto Mancini. And when he was in charge between 2009 and 2013, how specifically did he get remuneration and how was it disclosed. And that's a big part of this as well. And obviously we can delve into what will be any resulting potential punishments or consequences. But when you've got 115 charges and you look at Everton and their punishment, if there is a consistency with the independent panel and if Everton's 10 point deduction stands and is not overturned, then one would imagine logically and legally speaking that Manchester City's punishment, should they be found guilty, will be significantly more severe. Yeah, just to pick up on that Roberto Mancini um, thing, is that the, the the charge is that there was a second secret salary paid to him, which was undeclared by the club. 
Um, and that is the accusation that they are having to defend. And, and of course, as Ben was saying, those inflated prices from sponsorship deals um, with Abu Dhabi. Um, why do you think uh, there are that, that the Premier League has chosen so many charges, Jonathan? It, it almost seems like everything we think we might get, uh, we're going to throw at them, where a more concerted effort or, or maybe some smaller charges that they certainly felt they might be able to prove more might have been uh, a wiser plan of action. Bearing in mind this has gone on so long already. And uh, as you've said, you know, we're not going to get started until the autumn of next year and maybe not get a result for 18 months time. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I knew more about why they've chosen these 115. I mean, I guess if they genuinely think they're guilty on 115 counts, then you know it's not it's not like um you know a a fraudster or something where you think well there's no point prosecuting on 200 counts because you're not going to jail them for 1200 years or whatever you know jailing them for 20 years is 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 more than enough in this instance i guess you, you could have a situation where they docked an enormous number of points but they all apply to one season so they finish one season on you know minus 800 points or something um and I guess in that that case, eight hundred is the same as eighty. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but I, I I think you have to assume that they're acting in good faith and that they they genuinely believe that on these hundred fifteen charges they they have a reasonable chance of, of conviction. Now, of course, in relation to the to the Everton punishment, we're we're led to believe, although it's it's slightly murky, and I think this will come out in the appeal, that the the guideline is six points per charge plus a point for every £5 million in breach. Now, if that logic is applied, you're talking about 690 points for the 115 breaches, even before you get on to <laughs> you know, however many hundreds of millions they, they, they may, may or may not be in breach. So you are potentially talking about, about huge numbers. And then you then you get the question of, A, what's the point? Can, do you spread them over a number of seasons? Do you say, well, that means that you have to be relegated to the fifth, sixth, seventh of tier. Um, and, and this is all so unprecedented. I just don't think we have any 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 answer to that. Um, and of course, the, the other the other point is that Everton did, after the initial um, allegation was made, they were praised by the independent body for cooperating and for revealing everything they should reveal. Well, given a lot of these charges relate to City not complying, you would assume that they'd be pushing for stiffer penalties because of that. And Jonathan, what do you make of the process? I think that you touched upon it there. It will differ from Everton to Manchester City, but what we're seeing is a lack of transparency. Now, on the one hand, these are private financial accounts. So the Premier League would probably argue the process runs its due course via an independent panel, and then they will inform. And when they can share, they will share. But because of the lack of information and the lack of clarity over process whilst it's ongoing, it seems a lot murkier. It feels a lot more mudded. Do you feel that this is the right way of addressing the situation? Or does it lack transparency and even though we've got an independent panel that are hearing it so it's not the premier league the premier league are effectively prosecuting the independent panel is deciding but do you sense it needs something bigger 
from outside of only the Premier League, from outside of only the club. We know the football regulator, which is independent, is incoming, but that's going to take some time. Are you happy with the logistical side of the process or do you think it lacks transparency? I think the there's a huge problem with the lack of transparency in that it's very, very hard to be certain this is a robust uh, and just process. You know, the, the whole point of trials, you know, criminal trials being held in public is you can go along, you can watch it, you can see. Now, of course, there are times when there is sensitive information there, but criminal cases are very good at sort of saying, okay, this bit is 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 closed, and we'll you know, we'll tell you the what, what happened afterwards, but you know, there are certain details we cannot reveal in public. So I'm not really sure why it's why it's not more public. Um and I think inevitably, whatever the outcome of this, there will be concerns that the deals have been done, that it sort of allows rumours of stitch-up to to sprout. Um, and I think we've even seen that with with what happened with, with City with in the case with UEFA and Cass. Now, I think we should stress that Cass did not find City sort of innocent of the charges. They just said they were time-barred and therefore couldn't be prosecuted. So I think a lot of City fans, certainly, and, and the City's club messaging, is saying, oh, you know, we were we were let off on appeal. You know, there's nothing to see here. Well, no, there's a lot to see. It's just it took so long, uh, and of course, City were part of that process of spinning it out um, because one of the things they were charged with by UEFA was was not cooperating. Obviously, the less you cooperate, the longer it takes, and so the greater chance that that the time barring kicks in. Now, time barring doesn't apply to the Premier League, so that that's not a get out. Um, but, I mean, the fact it's gone on so long, the fact we're talking about summer 2025, there could well be further delays. City seem to be quite good at making these things take as long as possible. You're talking about things that then have happened 12 years earlier. Um, so this, this sort of shadow hangs over the Premier League that if you had 19 of the teams there complying with the regulations and one team not, then the whole integrity of the league is brought into doubt. And that's why I think the process whatever the outcome, has to be seen to be open and robust because that issue of integrity becomes critical for how the Premier League markets itself. And you then have this, this question of would the Premier League have prosecuted this as hard? Would they have gone for 115 charges had it not been for this independent regulator which is about to be imposed? Is this their way of saying, oh, look, actually, we, we are capable of regulating ourselves? And that is something that Everton have said, that they feel that they have been been sort of the victims of that process, victims of a political process whereby the Premier League says, actually, you know, you can leave us alone. We're, we're perfectly capable of handling this ourselves. Yeah, I think it's very difficult if Everton come back and were they to uh, succeed in their appeal, then what obviously what that means for the authority of the independent commission. I mean, maybe we can drift into that a little bit later. Um, I But I wonder is... I really agree with you here, Jonathan, on the point that there is nothing transparent in this process at all. And the fact that the Premier League has almost shut up shop and said there will be no further comment on this at all um, makes it very difficult from those at, for those outside, fans, uh, other commentators on the game, to really appreciate and, and have belief and faith in the system that is there and and that can only backfire on the premier league i think um yeah i mean i don't i don't so much mind them not commenting on on this particular case i mean i think as soon as something becomes subjudicated as soon as a charge is leveled 
we should be quiet about it. You know, that that is again how it would work in a yes. criminal case. I, th I think in terms of the process, given we just don't understand the process, we don't know what it is. I think they could be a lot clearer about that. And I think once that begins, I don't see why we can't report on it or you know, people watch it in the same way that they would they would follow a a, a normal um, uh, proceeding. Ben, uh, just outline again what the possible punishments could be for Man City. I mean, we clearly know that a points deduction is is possible. We've seen that happen to previous clubs and to happen to Everton, obviously most recently. Yeah, and just before I do that, I think you both make a really strong point that's worth emphasizing regarding the independent panel and that T word transparency, only because we shouldn't be looking at this as if the process is robust, it means severe punishment. We should be looking at this as if the process is transparent, then we are aware that it's run its due course. And if it results in a severe punishment, then obviously we understand the kind of paper trail behind it. If it results, for example, in Everton going from a 10-point deduction back to a zero-point deduction or Manchester City being cleared because they say that they are innocent, then we'll be able to understand why. I think the challenge is if we don't understand the process either at the time or retrospectively, then we can't be sure that it's robust. And if we can't be sure it's robust, then we don't get a sense of whether the punishments are fair or not. So on those potential punishments, they're outlined in the Premier League's handbook in a section known as W51. And essentially, in very basic terms, there's a range of options. And most people are getting sucked in by the points deduction. We've already spoken about that kind of ratio in terms of how many points you're deducted versus what the breaches are financially. And that can set a precedent. So therefore, if you use that kind of formula or model, loosely speaking, and suddenly Everton go from a 10-point deduction to only a three-point deduction, then the model kind of changes. So we're getting a lot of talk at the moment in the context of a points deduction, which is one potential punishment that Manchester City could have a 30-point deduction. But that's kind of guesswork to some extent. It could be 30, could be 60, it could be anything really. And a 30-point deduction for Manchester City, by the way, would mean nothing if they go through an entire season and get 100 points. They'd go to 70, they might still get fourth or fifth place in Champions League football, but they certainly wouldn't be relegated. So points deduction is one thing. Other sanctions could be fines and it could be points deduction and fines. And at a very extreme end, there could be expulsion from the Premier League. So not a points deduction that takes you down, but actually being kicked out of the league. And then interestingly, there's no obligation for the EFL to take a team that's been expelled from the Premier League. So that means that if you were hypothetically expelled from the Premier League, it's not a case of going into the championship and coming back up one season. You could be put right to the bottom in theory anyway, of the football pyramid as well. So the panel can choose a punishment. They can also choose to combine a number of punishments together. And in essence, they're supposed to be proportionate to the breaches in question. And if they're not, you can go and appeal, not to Cass, but there is still another step to the process. So that's another key point here. Whatever is, if anything, is punished against Manchester City can immediately, as Everton are doing, be appealed as well. And that's why I think that we're in for a time-consuming process. And that goes to a different panel. There is a, there is an appeal panel, isn't it? There are certain uh, appeal criteria that are different from the independent commission that was originally set up and heard the case, as far as I understand it. Yes, correct. Thank you. Good.
Glad I got that right. Right. Well, at the moment, uh, there is no um, uh, sanction against Man City because they have yet to be proved um, guilty of anything. Uh, so transfers continue. And that leads us very nicely on to our transfer guru, Fabrizio Romano, who a little bit earlier caught up with Ben and start talking about Man City transfers. Fabrizio, thanks for joining me as ever. Let's start with Manchester City. Is it likely they'll let Kelvin Phillips go in January? And could a loan to Newcastle be possible? Yeah, I think he will go. Uh, I'm 95% sure he will leave Manchester City in the January transfer window. He has this kind of, of priority. He really wanted to stay in the summer because he had many possibilities in different countries with different clubs, but he wanted to compete, to stay, to fight for his place. But then at the end, he's almost never playing in important games. And that's why also because of the Euros in the summer, he wants to go and he wants to have a different opportunity. Man City are informed. So I think it's just a matter of time and then uh, they will pick the best solution. Newcastle could be a possibility. So Newcastle are one of the clubs interested. Uh, as I always mentioned, from what I'm told, Newcastle will decide the player they want to sign in that position once they will know the situation in the Champions League. So whether they will be in Champions League or Europa League or, or whatever. So that is going to be a crucial step. As far as Newcastle are concerned, they may have to be in the market for a goalkeeper as well. Nick Pope dislocated his shoulder in the win over Manchester United. Are reports that Newcastle could move for David De Gea true? Look, I'm still working on it. Uh, so at the moment, I still don't have any confirmation. For sure, the guy is a big opportunity and the guy is waiting for this kind of opportunity because he had some possibilities in Saudi at the end of August, beginning of September, and he always wanted to wait for European opportunities and Newcastle would be absolutely perfect. So I'm sure that the guy would be keen on that kind of, of opportunity. But at the same time, for Newcastle, I also heard uh, in the recent days uh, and also right after the injury of Nick Pope that they really trust Dubravka. They believe he's a very good backup goalkeeper. They trust him and so I would not be surprised if they decide to give him a chance in the upcoming games and then decide about David De Gea as an opportunity in the, in the next weeks. But I will let you know in the next hours when I will have some confirmation on this story. But for sure, De Gea could be, could be an opportunity. He's a free agent and he would love to continue in Europe. So I'm sure De Gea would be keen on that kind of opportunity. So that one's an evolving situation. I should point out as well that we are recording this Monday at lunchtime. Newcastle have also been linked with Stuttgart, Sergio Geraci. A number of clubs, in fact, are tracking him. Do you see a mid-season exit? He's obviously in good form in the Bundesliga. Yeah, I think it's a possibility. This is a quite special close because usually release clauses are never valid in the January transfer window and always in the summer transfer window. But this close for Girassi, 17.5 million euros, is valid in January. And so that's why many clubs are informed. Newcastle are informed, May United, but also Italian clubs, German clubs. So a lot of clubs know very well how this close works and they are interested in the situation. But at the moment... There is still no decision made on player side also because Stuttgart are trying in every way to convince Girassi to stay till the end of the season and then leave in the summer. But from what I'm hearing, the possibility for a January move is really concrete. It's something that the player is also considering. So I'm sure that in the next two, three weeks, they will keep discussing, especially on player side. It's more on player side than on club side. I think he has to decide what kind of step he wants to take. And so there are discussions ongoing, but still no clarity whether this Newcastle opportunity is the only one. I think there are many clubs interested in Girassi. Now, Aurelio Di Laurentiis said recently that Victor Osterman is at, quote, the signing stage of a new deal first offered over the summer. Do you expect Osterman to extend? And would any new deal still have a provision allowing him to realistically leave in 2024? 
Look, I'm not sure they are that close to signing a new deal. Uh, Napoli president De Laurentiis many times like to, uh, I can say, uh, to use the media also to put some pressure. So it's also normal. Napoli are trying. Napoli are trying with the best proposal in their history. It's fair to remember that Napoli Noguls presented an incredible proposal for their budget to Victor Osimen. It's a higher salary than players like Cavani, Higuain and many others had in the recent years. So it's a really big, big contract. But from what I'm hearing at the moment, there is still no full agreement in place with the Simen. Napoli are pushing, Napoli are insisting, Napoli also improved their proposal. So they're waiting for him. Uh, De Laurentiis is optimistic, but from what I'm hearing, it's still not a done deal. In any case, I think the opportunity for Victor Osimhen to leave in summer 2024 remains really, really concrete. As I always mention, I don't see a general exit for, uh, for Osimhen. I think the most likely solution is going to be a summer move. And I'm not so sure that he's going to sign a new deal. Jamal Felix scored the winner for Barcelona against his parent club Atletico Madrid yesterday. How feasible do you think is a permanent move to Barca this summer? It will depend on a lot of factors. Uh, it will depend on the financial fair play situation, on the sales that Barcelona will be able to, to complete. So there are many factors and for sure... I think this is going to be a saga for May and for June, not for now. So now Barcelona just want to enjoy Joao. He just arrived three months ago. It's not even three months that he joined uh, He joined Barcelona. So they're very happy with him. He's very happy there. The feeling is, is really great. And also the feeling of those close to the player is that he can't return to Atletico Madrid. Okay, he has a long contract and the president of Atletico Madrid keep repeating that. But at the same time, Joao doesn't want to play for Atletico Madrid anymore. So the feeling is that he will have an opportunity to stay at Barcelona. In terms of how how to structure the deal, I think it will take time. It will depend on a lot of factors. It's not going to be easy because Atletico want an important package of money, so it's not going to be easy at all. But for sure, Barca will work on it because they are very happy with Joao and Joao is very happy with Barca and same with Xavi. Xavi has been crucial in this beginning of the season for Joao Felix to feel very good. And so I think they will try every way to, to make it happen. Let's talk about Manchester United. Do you still expect Jadon Sancho to leave even with Ineos taking sporting control relatively imminently? And is there any update on Juventus's interest in Sancho? Yeah, that's still the feeling. The feeling is still for, for Jadon Sancho to leave Manchester United in the January window. Still waiting to see what's going to be the best solution. Still waiting to understand what kind of position Manchester United will have. And that's the position of Juventus too. Juventus have an interest in Jadon Sancho. Juventus spoke to people close to the player, but they're waiting for May United to have this famous new board, new structure with new people in charge deciding on what they want to do for, for the outgoings, including Jadon Sancho. And so you were waiting. Uh, that's their, their position. Now it's on my United. If they want to accept a loan deal, if they only want a permanent transfer, there are some decisions to make internally at my United. This is really important because Juventus can't go there and bid for 40, 50 or 60 millions. This is not going to happen for Juventus. It's only an opportunity on loan deal for Jadon Sancho and also with part of the salary covered by my United. Juve don't want to pay the whole salary of Jadon Sancho. So I don't think it's an easy deal, but it really depends more on my United than on Juventus. And just a final quick word on Marcus Rashford as well. Signed a new deal. The form isn't great at the moment, but is he still happy at Old Trafford? Yeah, he is. I think it's just a moment. It's a negative moment, but we can't forget what he did last season at Manchester United. His feeling with Eric Hag has always been excellent. So I think it's a very negative moment, but it's not just Marcus Rashford. We know it's been a complicated beginning of the season in general for Manchester United, also for other players. So he needs some time, but people in the coaching staff still backing him, trusting him, and he's still convinced of the decision he made months ago to sign a deal at Manchester United. So I don't think there is going to be any change in the, in the upcoming months. Fabrizio, always a pleasure catching up. Get some rest ahead of January. And as ever, thanks for your time. Thank you.
Thank you, thank you, and see you soon. Thank you. That's Ben with Fabrizio Romano. Remember, Fabrizio joins us every week here on The Debrief, giving us all the updates on the transfer market. Ben is with me as usual. Also, Jonathan Wilson, who is editor of The Blizzard and Guardian columnist. Um, Jonathan, let, let's come back to you. What is this a, a potential watershed moment for football and certainly the Premier League? These what would or may come out of this Manchester City investigation? Oh, it's huge. Uh, I mean, we've just never had anything like this in English football before, certainly not in the top flight. Uh, the teams having points deducted. I mean, I, I remember it happening, what, 32 years ago when Arsenal Manchester United had a huge brawl at Old Trafford and they were docked two points and a, and a single point. But in terms of yeah, the level of points deductions we could potentially be talking about, it's enormous. Um, and I, I, it's yeah, we, we mentioned this before, it's a huge issue for the credibility of the league. With Chelsea, we now understand being investigated as well. You're talking about the clubs who've won 12 of the last 19 championships being, well, in one case charged, in one case under investigation. Now, if it is found they have won those leagues by by cheating, by breaching these regulations, then then that, you know, so two decades we can kind of write off as, well, none of that was quite what we thought it was. It's it's the equivalent of, you have a Lance Armstrong years in the Tour de France. And and you then wonder what, what would happen to the Premier League. Would, would its popularity wane? Would people care about this? Uh, I mean, that's something I have to say. I still don't really... I can't really get a handle on how much do, do ordinary fans follow this? How much do they care about it? Are they bothered by this? Or do they just sort of, you know, turn on the TV or turn up the stadium, watch the game, you know, enjoy that, be diverted from uh, their everyday lives? And they don't really care about, you know, the, the minutiae of fiscal caps and things. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard to know to what extent they'd be bothered. But I, I think it is here. Yeah, potentially the ramifications for the Premier League are, are enormous. I mean, I think that they have to be bothered. People have to be bothered. If we if we have rules, otherwise, we have we have Man City, we have uh, potentially Man United. If Ineos plow you know millions into it, and you and you get or billions into it, and then you just get runaway teams who play by their own rules. I don't think we can ever have a sport or an organisation or or clearly the biggest money making sport in the UK in Europe. Um, being distorted in this way, if it's proven that that Manchester City have, have clearly flouted the rules to such a huge extent, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I just, I'm not convinced other people are, are as <laughs> excited by it as, as we are. The, as we are. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the thing that you, you know, I hear regularly is, oh well, yeah, Manchester United had more money than anybody else in the '90s, which is is true. But I mean, a these regulations weren't in place in the '90s. And yep. B, there's something quite different about a state owning a owning a club, and that I think is is something that the Premier League are potentially in, could face huge difficulties with. The fact that we know there's a close relationship between the British government and the government of the UAE. Um, to what extent would political pressures be brought to bear? Yeah, we know that Boris Johnson and his government uh, put pressure on the Premier League to. Um, accept the Saudi takeover of Newcastle. So what, why would they not be involved in this, given the close ties between the countries, given the fact that governments have proved themselves willing to, to get involved? And this, of course, is the you know, the biggest issue with states being involved in football. A, they're much, much richer than any quote-unquote normal owner. But B, they can bring 
pressure to bear from places that you know Jack Walker couldn't get the British government to intervene on his behalf. You know that, that that's Bob Murray at Sunderland couldn't get the, the you know John Hall at Newcastle. <laughs> uh, you know they were rich men who who were powerful in their areas, but they weren't states. They didn't have you know there wasn't a regiment of the British Army based on the Winyard Estate where John Hall was living. I mean maybe they should have been, but there wasn't. <laughs> I think as well, Jonathan, one thing that's interesting in all of this is we speak now about the process needing to be robust, but we know historically there hasn't been as many robust checks and balances. And because many of these charges or things that are being investigated in the context of Chelsea are historical, the counterpoint from Manchester City might be, even if it's wrong, that was just how things were done there was less clarity on the rules. The counterpoint from Chelsea's new owners will certainly be, we inherited this, we were transparent about it, we came to you with the problem, and as a result, there should be mitigating circumstances. So do you think, Jonathan, the problems are, one, these rich owners, sometimes state-owned or backed, have all the money, but the clubs that they are inheriting don't, because the rules cap it sometimes. So there's almost a mismatch there. They want to spend their money, but they can't according to the rules. And it leads to these potential alleged breaches. But two, and maybe more importantly, do you sense one of the challenges is so much time has passed and there's been a lack of transparency and robustness that anybody accused now is just going to turn around and say, how can you punish us for things we did in the past when there wasn't as much clarity, robustness, or transparency? Well, I, I think feigning ignorance of the regulations is not an excuse. Every Premier League club signs up to this. And you can say that they weren't investigated as, as thoroughly as they are now, that, it, that the independent regulator or the, you know, the, the fact ones coming in has made the Premier League be much more um, aware of this, which may or may not be true, but I, I get why people would say that. You can say all of that. The fact is, these clubs signed up to these regulations, and if you breached them, hard luck. Sorry, you shouldn't have done that. If 19 clubs were playing by those regulations that you all agreed to, you can't have one of them say, "Oh, we didn't didn't really think that applied to us." That's that's just not not an excuse. Um, I think the issue of who bears the, the the burden of guilt is is a huge problem, and I don't really know how you get around that. That. Um, I think you have to just apply apply the law as it would apply in in for, for companies. But yes, maybe the shareholders have changed, maybe the board of directors has changed, maybe the the the, the owner has changed. But that company as an entity remains constant, and its crimes of the past will be prosecuted in the present. And if you didn't spot that when you're doing your due diligence taking over, again, I'm sorry, that's just the way it works. But that brings us actually to I think a much more fundamental point about football, which is who do clubs belong to. And we exist in this world where we sort of have this this happy fiction, where the clubs are the property of the fans. But it, and there are some clubs where that that is true, but they're very much in the minority. And the truth is that since football turned professional in eighteen eighty five, the clubs have never been the property of fans. They've fans have always been reliant on the owner, who for much of football's history was a local businessman, who lived in the area, who was from the area and he probably needed to keep the fans on side to keep his local business going. Um, and, and you were reliant on, on that relationship to to ensure that owner behaved well. But, I mean, that's that's been broken over the last 50, 50 years, 40 years, and, and increasingly since Abramovich came in. So, the, the, you know, 
the way you we got around, we should have got around this was in 1888 when the league was founded a stipulation should have been made that football clubs were not normal businesses that they had some special status <laughs> as community assets sadly mm. we're too late for that but that 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 is the problem we're still grappling with essentially that but ultimately you know if if city are relegated to I don't know, National League or, or whatever, or even if they dock 30 points. The people who suffer aren't the manager or the players who happily move on to the next club if they want to. It's the fans who've been with them for 30, 40, 50 years who suddenly find that these things that they, they paid money to go and watch, that they expended all this emotional energy on, that they were you know, potentially fraudulent. Do you think Chelsea have been slightly naive in the way they've behaved? Um, clearly the due diligence wasn't strong enough, as you suggested. And even though you come out and try and be the honest and the, and the, um, the honest broker, actually it's something you're, you're just being honest about a mistake that in doing your due diligence, you failed. Um, and, and therefore, you, 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 know, the, you, you haven't come out on the right side. I mean, I guess there's two ways of looking at that, that uh, they would have looked at Chelsea... Yeah, because remember, I'm just forced to sell because of the sanctions. Yeah. And they would have seen, okay, this is an asset that we can probably get cheaper than it, it would go for normally. And actually, having said that, I think the price they paid was extraordinary. I don't think it made any sense in, in the current climate. I think that was made with a view to potential changes in the future that will mean that top clubs can make more money. But yeah, the sort of forensic accounting you need to to find out what an oligarch's been doing via companies in Israel, you know, this is incredibly complicated. Um, and I, I guess then they they felt the need to act urgent, you know, to act swiftly to to get the deal done because that was a club without an owner. There were, you know, I mean, Ben knows this better than me, but there were sort of three or four, you know, realistic bids. And essentially, whichever one could put together a proper package first was was always going to win it, and and so I, I could see why they 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 perhaps didn't do the 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 necessary level of due diligence. But but equally, yeah, who who does go into such yeah such detail? Um, but it may be they 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 pay the price for that. What do you think the impact will be on Chelsea, the the Manchester City? scenario what impact might that have on Chelsea should should Chelsea just stand by because it is coming at them well I, I think I think Chelsea are doing the right thing now they, I mean they appear to be, be being very open um I think that's the right thing to do I would hope that as and when anybody is found guilty and as and when punishments are dished out that that would be taken into account but if a you know if Chelsea have gained their position by legal means um then, then there needs to be some form of punishment, and and you know that leads us, I, th I think, to something that, that applies to Everton, it applies to Manchester City, it, it could apply to Chelsea, or it could apply to Manchester City, it could apply to Chelsea, which is if other clubs then sue those clubs. So we've got the precedent from the two thousand six seven season when uh, West Ham signed Carlos Tevez, and it turned out they hadn't registered him properly because because of third party ownership, and Sheffield United sued them. It took till 2009, but they got a, a 20 million pound settlement, which is 15 million pounds straight plus an extra five million pounds if West Ham was sold. And that was because Sheffield United had been relegated. West Ham stayed up on the final day because Carlos Tevez scored the winner at, at Manchester United. Um, now, if if a value of not being relegated in 2007 was 20 million, what is the value of, well, in Everton's case, not being relegated more recently? 
or possibly Manchester City's case of qualifying for Europe, of winning the league title over eight seasons. You know, that, that, that's way, 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 way more than £20 million because it's more than one club involved. And okay, the Abu Dhabi can probably afford to pay that. But that then affects them for FFP and, and profit and sustainability regulations in the future. It's still a massive hit. Um, and maybe were something similar to happen to Chelsea, then um, Todd Bowley would not be able to, to, to afford that in the same way. Yeah, and I think as well, we spoke about due diligence and in the Chelsea case, that was a takeover done at super speed. So it was very difficult. Due diligence for a standard takeover can take the best part of a year and Chelsea, any prospective bidder and the ultimate new owner, Clear Lake Bowley, only had a matter of months. So what they did in the context of Chelsea was they set aside 100 million for liabilities that became apparent towards the last few weeks of the completion process. And 8.7 million of that has been used in a UEFA settlement. And we wait and see whether or not the remainder has to be utilised. Of course, some of it will have gone on legal fees. Some of it will have gone on logistical things as part of the UEFA settlement. But there's probably 85, 90 million still around in case there is a fine, in case there is a legal case to be heard. And Chelsea are currently being investigated. No charges have been levelled. But I think that in the same way, due diligence is quite difficult in many ways because you have to sometimes do it at super speed, especially if you're up against another suitor and there's pressure. And that was the nature of a very public takeover in Chelsea's case, a very atypical one as well, because Abramovich was forced to sell. But there's also the legal process and the balance and the challenge is that a season is a season. It's locked in the calendar. And a legal process is very unlikely to be resolved in that same window if in the case of Manchester City or potentially Chelsea, there's millions and millions of pages of documents and there's an appeals process. And as a consequence, if you can't resolve it in that window, then you're opening yourself up to another series of sub-cases or legal challenges as we're finding from Everton because you suddenly get Burnley who went down in the first season in the final relegation spot Everton stayed up and Burnley went down then in the next season Everton is still there in the Premier League so then Leicester who go down can say well Everton should have gone down the previous season they're still there we went down Everton have stayed up we're going to join the legal case and this unfortunately is the difficulty, in my opinion anyway, that unless you can resolve it clearly and quickly legally without appeals, without it dragging on, which I think is near impossible in a legal context because you always have to give the ability to challenge and you have to have a fairness of process. But if it drags on beyond one season and potentially it drags on over six or seven seasons, then that allows more people to challenge it and it creates more complications and eventually it becomes a tangled web that is being weaved that is very difficult to untangle for lawyers, for clubs, for challenges, and you get buried in red tape. And I suspect that's what Manchester City hope will happen. Jonathan, what do you suspect the outcome of this might be? I mean, I I, I don't know. Um, and I, I think it's, it's because there's been so little transparency um, and clearly you, you, you need access to City's accounts. You need to, to have far more... Uh, evidence than than we as journalists have, or as as the, the as the public have. So, um, I just hope that the process is is not merely robust, but obviously robust, so that whatever outcome is reached, 
we can have faith that that, that decision has been taken for the right reasons. It hasn't been taken because the Premier League needs to protect this integrity by saying, oh, actually, all those titles were fine. And now, look, we've investigated and it's all fine. Um, or that yeah, pressure hasn't been put on by by external agencies or, or governments. I just hope that, that it, it is it is all all open and, and clear. Um, because I think, yeah, you look you look back at the Tour de France when Lance Armstrong was winning, and if we had a similar thing in football where suddenly you've got maybe 12 of the last 19 titles, yeah, no winner, asterisk. That's a really terrible thing for football. Um, because it's, it's not just that that would all seem artificial and a waste. It's, you know, I, I say the final day of this season, I, I don't know, say Liverpool win the title with a 96-minute goal in the final day of this season. And, yeah, everybody goes berserk. There's huge outpourings of emotion at Anfield. And then at the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, not only do we have to wait for VAR to say that's okay, but we've probably got to wait another 15 years to make sure that, that the Premier League rules and regulations have all been followed properly. Uh, what a brilliant, what a brilliant way to uh, look at it. I think that's sadly that, that that might be very true because, but then if if you say you're you know you're you're, scr- you're effectively you're scrubbing out Sergio Aguero's uh, you know winner. Uh, on what was one of the most fantastic last days of um, Premier League football we've ever seen. And actually, that might count for nothing. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the worry. Yeah, I mean, I do yeah. wonder, actually, if you, if you said to City fans, given where they were in 2008, look, you're going to win, in the next 15 years, you're going to win six league titles, you're going to win the Champions League. Um, and then somebody's going to come along and say, actually, you know, for financial regularities, none of them count. Would they still take that? I kind of think from where they were in 2008, they might. <laughs> they might do. Yes. Ben, your your final thoughts? Well, I think as we said earlier, it's a watershed moment for football. It's a test of the robustness of the process. And in addition to that, there'll be a knock-on effect from Everton to Manchester City, potentially from Manchester City to Chelsea, potentially, even though Chelsea haven't been charged. I think that as journalists, we always need to be responsible and point out that Manchester City strenuously deny the charges and their position is very much that people are jumping to a conclusion of guilt rather than starting from a position of innocence. And if we look at the UEFA case, There were some that were seen to be outside of UEFA's remit because charges were time barred. But the CAS panel also made it clear that there were other charges that they didn't feel by a majority verdict were established. Now, if you're the Premier League, you presumably know all of that and you still come up with 115. And to get to 115, I think, is important because some will say, that's not fair, that's not correct, that won't be proven. Maybe there is some overlap with the UEFA case, but you really only need one from 115 to start punishing. And if you get two or three, the punishment becomes very severe. So I think that this is key because Manchester City are not their own model. They might have a uniqueness And they might be in a position because the City Football Group and their backing from the UAE where they appear their own monster. But you've got PIF and Newcastle. You've got Clear Lake Bowley now and Chelsea. You've got Jim Ratcliffe coming into Manchester United. So multi-club models are building. Some are state-backed, some are not. Some are disputed about being state-backed and some are just rich private owners. But regardless, 
Football is now about rich owners and often foreign owners who have got a lot of money to influence, but have historically and will be in the future capped by these rules. So knowing that the rules are consistent and transparent are important and knowing that the punishments stick are equally important. We saw for match fixing, for example, and potentially going forwards with Juventus and their financial woes, quite strict punishments in Italy. And we did see sides kicked out of Serie A. And that tells you, regardless of the individual club's positions and what may happen with Juventus in the future, that punishment sticked. So again, it's a watershed moment for me because if the Everton punishment doesn't stick, then it's not a good start even though Everton will obviously argue that's fair and it's an independent process. Punishments don't stick. If you did go from 10 points to zero, that's quite an extreme drop. And if that happened, then again, is this just a process being initiated by the Premier League ahead of the independent regulator in order to almost show some swagger and bullishness and then that they tried and that they can regulate themselves. And then if the independent panel ends up giving out a punishment and it immediately gets overturned, you start to wonder whether this is all just posturing, it's all just lawyers, it's all just saying the right things, and we're back where we started once again, with the biggest clubs being controlled by the richest owners and sometimes the richest states doing their own thing, winning and playing by their own rules. Whereas if punishments stick, we're in a completely different position, and whether clubs are innocent or guilty, we can all sleep at night knowing that the process is a bit more transparent and a bit more robust. And if we head in that direction, it's the right direction for football, regardless of the outcomes in these individual cases. Well, we won't know until that um, statement on the Premier League website is popped up, because that, uh, that's what their rules suggest, that that's what they're going to do. So so they can just pin a little, um, a little notice next to a picture of Sean Dyche, and, uh, then we'll, and then we'll find out what, what their uh, adjudication is. Uh, ben, thank you very much. Jonathan, thanks very much. When's, uh, when's the next edition of The Blizzard out? And what have you got in line for your readers? It's, it's out this week. Uh, so ah. we've got a big piece on Vladimir Romanov's time in charge of hearts. We've got a very moving piece about uh, Paktakor, who were the Uzbek club, where all but two of the team were wiped out in the plane crash in 1979. So, yeah, really moving piece on that. We've got an interview with Jan Molby. We've got a piece looking at uh, when Jean Havelange replaced Stanley Rouse as FIFA president in 1974, which tries to be a little bit more sympathetic to Havelange than a lot of people, I think, are, uh, without sort of uh, downplaying the corruption that subsequently went on under him. Um, so, yeah, the, the usual mix of uh, esoteric uh, and hopefully interesting subjects. But that Pactacor piece was a, something I didn't know anything about. Um, this this great side that uh, were, were killed in a plane crash over modern Ukraine. Yeah, well, that's a, a fascinating read. Go to theblizzard.co.uk uh, for that. And Jonathan, once again, thank you very much for your company. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for watching. You've been listening to The Debrief, and we'll be back again next week.